Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Last time, we analyzed Dr. Sam Waldron's book, Political Revolution in the Reformed Tradition. I chose to analyze said book because it provides crucial perspectives, both for the church and the individual Christian, as they navigate through the perplexing ethical and societal questions that have recently emerged. And what are such perplexing ethical and societal questions? How is the Christian called to think and act biblically while simultaneously living in the midst of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world? How does the Christian faithfully serve God when he or she lives under a civil authority that either denies God existence or treats God as subordinate? How do Christians respond to civil authorities that exalt themselves above the Lord and try to usurp authority in the church or the home? And so, in the prior episode, I used political revolution as a theological guide to develop answers to five specific questions. Those questions were, number one, where does the government come from? Number two, what is a civil authority called to do? Number three, does the Bible support or prohibit political revolution? Number four, what is the relationship between subordination to civil magistrates and obedience to the same authorities? Number five, does Romans 13 call us to obey the government blindly in all situations? In order to summarize the main answers from last time, I will paraphrase the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Quote, God alone is sovereign, and he has ordained civil magistrates to be under him and over the people for his own glory and the public good. He has thus armed the state with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. Because God has ordained civil magistrates, Christians ought to yield to them in the Lord in all lawful things commanded by them, not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. However, when the civil magistrate commands an unlawful thing, we are obligated to obey God and disobey authorities. End quote. What we are left with now is applying the principles discussed last time to specific situations in everyday life. Today, I will answer five additional questions. Those questions are, number one, what is the specific sphere of the state's authority? Number two, how does the Christian respond when the state exceeds its lawful jurisdiction? Number three, how should the Christian think about the state, positively, negatively, or neutral? Number four, how should the church engage the state? And number five, in the United States, does Romans 13 guide us on how to vote? Let's now move to the first question. What is the specific sphere of the state's authority? Last time, we defined what the state is, what it is called to do in a limited sphere of authority, and how we are called to respond to it. The question now becomes, if the state's authority is limited, what are the limitations of its jurisdiction? Romans 13, 1-4 tells us that the state is responsible for maintaining law and order, and it may use the power of the sword to do so. The Christian understands that the task of government is not only divinely ordained, but also requires financial support. 
the Christian is therefore obligated to pay taxes with a distinctive motive and understanding that their financial contributions are an element of obedience and devotion to God. Hence, Romans 13, 5-7 says, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. So, if we consider Romans 13, 1-7 as a whole, what is made explicit is that the state's sphere of authority certainly includes law and order. This means civil magistrates are responsible for armies, police, judicial systems, etc. Its sphere also includes taxation in order to finance its maintenance of law and order. We get into gray areas then when the state acts outside the domain of law and order. So on the one hand, just because the Bible is silent on whether it's the state's business to be involved in, for example, health, education, or social welfare programs, this does not necessarily imply the state is overreaching if it does operate in those arenas so long as it remains aware that its primary function is law and order. The state fails to adhere to its biblical calling when it puts primary emphasis on peripheral matters at the expense of law and order. So, for example, the state is failing in its responsibilities when it enforces social policies that promote lawlessness and chaos. On the other hand, there is nothing that is sphere-less or that does not fall under the four domains of human authority, the church, the family, the state, or the individual. Hence, if any entity steps outside its sphere, it, by necessity, intrudes on the domain of another sphere which nudges an investigation into that authority's validity. So, for those who stay as close to the text as possible, the specific sphere of the state's authority is limited to law and order. Now we move on to the second question. How does the Christian respond when the state exceeds lawful jurisdiction and invades the jurisdiction of another divinely appointed human authority, like the jurisdiction of the church or the family? It is Waldron's view that when the state exceeds lawful jurisdiction, the Christian may disobey the government. I agree with this conclusion because it does not establish a black and white rule that all must follow uniformly in all situations. After all, reality can sometimes be fuzzy and complicated. Thus, individual Christians are free to exercise their Christian liberty in matters where they are not compelled to sin against God by the state. For if they are compelled to sin, they must disobey. The principle that guides the Christian in such matters is the principle of conscience. It's no surprise, then, that after Paul gives us principles of living in subjection to authorities in Romans 13, he anticipates divergent responses. Thus, in the next chapter, the apostle gives us principles of conscience. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 3 and 10 to 12 says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not to have quarrels over opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. But as for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? 
or you as well, why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So what is a biblical definition of conscience? Conscience is an innate sense of God's moral law that is installed in all human beings. God alone is the Lord of conscience since He is the one who implanted it in all people. Accordingly, this is a crucial point not to miss when we talk about the state's lawful jurisdiction. That is, there will be gray areas in matters that are morally neutral. As a result, different Christians will be led in different directions based on conscience and that's okay, as long as we all realize that all true Christians are children of God. Divergent decisions on peripheral matters will not bear weight in eternity. In the end, as children of God, we are members of the same spiritual family and are obligated to love one another regardless of where conscience leads on neutral matters. And before you evaluate your brother's behavior, consider yours first because you will give an account of yourself to the Lord, not an account of another. Hence, what we ought never to do is impose our will on our neighbor or allow my conscience to crush someone else's Christian liberty. What we ought never to do is say, because I have a preference for one thing in a neutral matter, then you must also do as I. When engaging with members of the church, we ought not to let decisions about the state divide us, because when the state is long gone, we shall remain in Christ's eternal church. Furthermore, developing a proper biblical response to the state's overreach is critical because, historically speaking, the great error Christians have made is to uncritically yield to the state. This historical insight must be taken seriously because the state becomes a demonic state precisely when it pushes beyond its assigned sphere and seeks to control all of life. Think of Hitler's Third Reich or Stalin's Russia. In both historical regimes, civil magistrates wanted to control what you thought, what you did, what you said, and how you worshipped. This is clearly against the biblical teaching. Yet, what history teaches us is that the Christian is more inclined to be passive in the face of state-sanctioned evil as opposed to being active in resisting it. It is human nature to exalt itself, and when armed with the power of the sword, individuals in the state will invariably seek to gain more power and control. This is the great temptation of secular power. Therefore, every Christian must have clear lines drawn of where they will refuse to allow the state to intrude, and in drawing said lines, have a conviction of conscience. It is crucial that every Christian has a biblical framework to think about their response to the state's overreach. This call to action is timely because at the peak of the COVID hysteria, what we saw all over the world are states acting quote-unquote for good under the guise of a public health emergency when in actuality that good was veiled evil and forced many towards sin. For example, shutting churches down or compelling individuals to act against conscience for a medical procedure. I don't think I need to rehash the past, but it is crucial that all Christians understand that biblically speaking, the family, the church, and the individual each have their own inviolate spheres of authority. The family is the core social unit of civilization and preceded the state. 
marriage and family existed before the fall, the state was ordained to curb evil after the fall. The bond between a man and a woman is designed to be an illustration between Christ and the church. Parents naturally give life to a child, which is why their parents are their ultimate earthly authority. The church is essential, the church must gather regularly and corporatively, and the church is duty-bound to obey Christ, even when doing so violates government regulations and restrictions. Each individual is unique and is an image-bearer of God. God has given to each person a degree of individual freedom to think, speak, and act, and God, the Lord of conscience, has given only individuals the gift of a moral conscience, which they are free to exercise based on divine truth. A personal moral conscience is a divine gift that God has granted to individuals living under a state that acts without morals. The central point is that the Christian must have a clear biblical idea of what the jurisdictions of the family, the church, and the individual are so they know how to respond when the state overreaches. That was the second question. Now on to the third. How should the Christian think about the state, positively, negatively, or neutral? The Christian view of government is that it is something ordained by God for our good. And God would not have ordained something if he intended for us to ignore it. Practically speaking, this means Christians can neither live in a bubble without thinking of civil authority at all, nor ought they to despise it. After all, if we totally ignored all matters of secular authority and kept our heads in the figurative sand, what we are tacitly saying is that we are comfortable leaving matters of the state in the hands of the godless. We ought not to keep our light under a blanket or our salt in the spice cabinet. Light and salt are the most valuable when there is none of either. So, as a function of it being ordained by God, the Christian is called to have a positive overall view of secular authority in general. This, of course, does not mean we approve of specific evil manifestations of said authority. In fact, as I said last time, when governments degenerate and godless immorality flourishes, the hearts of the godly are deeply troubled. Still, God cares for his creatures and has a regard for them. This is why one avenue through which he providentially directs history and takes care of human affairs is through secular authority. Hence, when contemplating the evil of civil authority, let us always be mindful that God is not negligent, he is provident. In fact, to believe in a negligent God is worse than to believe in no God at all. Denial of God's providence only gives security to prostitute one's conscience and encourage sin. For many, corporate state-sanctioned evil troubles the heart to a greater degree than individual evil because the former involves both more active collaboration in service to malice and more sloth in the face of immorality. Yet it is the very presence of rising evil in the world that ought to give the Christian more hope in God's purposes. What do I mean by that? Well, in Matthew 13, 24-30 and 36-43, Jesus tells a parable of the wheat and the weeds to explain what the kingdom of God is like. In said parable, the field is the world. Christ is the sower that sows good seed in the ground. Such seeds are sons and daughters of the kingdom and will grow up to be wheat. At the end of the age, the good seeds will endure to the next age and will shine forth like the sun in God's kingdom. The devil, however, is the one who sows bad seed, who are sons and daughters of the evil one. 
The bad seeds grow up to be weeds. At the end of the age, the reaping angels will throw the weeds into the lake of fire. In the parable, the field workers recognize that the enemy has tried to sabotage their work when they observe many grown weeds adjacent to grain-bearing wheat. The workers then ask the landowner, should we gather up the weeds? But Jesus explains that the landowner gives a very interesting answer in Matthew 13, 29-30. That text says, No, while you are gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. What this verse tells us is that according to divine design, wheat and weeds are permitted to grow up side by side. Meaning what? that when we look out into the world and witness the wanton evil of weeds, we can have hope knowing that such weeds grow only where there is adjacent grain-yielding wheat. That is, where the sons of the devil are growing, so are the sons of God. And right now, God is only working to preserve and protect His children, for the weeds will not deter the growth of the wheat. This is our hope for the present. Additionally, while weeds may appear to be successful in the kingdom of the world, their end is doom. In other words, they are guaranteed to fail. Yet, the wheat are cared for by God Himself. In other words, they are guaranteed to endure. Christ's words thus give us hope for right now and for eternity, even in the midst of evil secular authority, knowing that under the direction of a provident God, nothing escapes His gaze. When evil grows, the Lord is growing His kingdom. This hope sheds light into the warnings and encouragements given by Christ to His people in the book of Revelation, where Christ repeatedly says, To the one who overcomes. See Revelation 2, 9, 17, and 26. And to the one who does overcome, Christ will reward in the end. This message is fitting for the American Christian who for so long has gotten comfortable with secular authority that overall has been friendly to Christianity. But get used to being made uncomfortable. Also, consider how in the book of Revelation, accepting the consequences of disobedience is validated in that we are called to endure unjust imprisonment and die for faith. Revelation 2 verses 9 to 11 says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So, when the Christian thinks about the state, although that perception is a positive one in general, it is also clear that the state certainly is not God and therefore is not sovereign. The point is that the Christian is not called to think about government in such a positive light that it is regarded as messianic. Secular authority never was, is not, and never will be a means of salvation. It has no positive ability to develop morality among its people, but certainly the government can express a particular moral code. 
Accordingly, whenever we think about the state, the single most important thing any Christian can do is think about their individual pursuit of holiness and become awake to things of God. That is to repent, pray, seek the face of the Lord, and turn from your individual wicked ways. History tells us that God gives people the leaders they deserve. Just ask the ancient Israelites who begged for a king and ended up with Saul, who ended up oppressing them despite God's warning that that was exactly what the king would do. Thus, when talking about societal change, what is evident is that when God begins to work in individuals, a moral climate is created, and out of that, then things begin to change. Consequently, what will change things is not electing a new politician into office or voting for the person who was born again. Politics is unable to affect the change you want unless the people's hearts have been awakened by God. Additionally, the person who is awake to God's truth is also quick to remind civil authorities that they too are accountable to the Lord. The final two points I will make on this question relate to war and rebellion. Generally speaking, there is nothing inherently wrong with either. War is certainly justified if it falls in line with what the Bible calls the state to do, restrain evil. With proper evidence, wars of defense are always justified. In contrast, wars of aggression are seldom justifiable. In regards to rebellion, it can be justifiable so long as a rebellion is not a violent political revolution initiated by those who are not civil magistrates. In the end, every man must be firmly decided in his own conscience after a thorough examination of the causes. On to the next question, number four. How should the church engage with the state? The church's role will be different than that of the individual. How? By its prophetic criticism. The church is not responsible for law and order, but can provide biblical principles to the state that it can develop its laws from. After all, the only valid basis for law is morality, and above that, a divinely given morality. Divine morality is the only right, legal basis for law, otherwise law is not based on the truth. So, if law does not produce morality, then the government must find that morality from another source. What source? God himself. He is the only legitimate source of transcendent, universal morality, and he gives expression of that moral code through his word to his people. So, if morality comes from God, the only people who can give expression to that is the people of God. The reality is, those in positions of authority are likely not searching the scriptures for guidance so the church will communicate truth for them for the benefit of society overall. This, of course, does not mean the church will seek to make Christian all of society. The church merely proclaims principles. On the same token, while the church will not try to force society into being pro-God, the state is not called to force society into being anti-God. When the church offers prophetic criticism, it does so based on the moral law contained in the Bible. Basically, the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the moral law is to promote the welfare of those who obey. It also includes penalties for disobedience. Because God's moral law is a reflection of his character, therefore we, as humans created in his image, are to live in accordance to that. You see, the God who designed and is sovereign over all of reality is a moral God and the moral arc of the universe bends towards righteousness. 
If a person does what is right, they will prosper. If they do what is wrong, they will fail. Even more, the moral law encompasses regulations on justice, respect, and property rights, so common sense informs us how it would benefit society overall. Truly, moral law does not point people to Christ. Rather, it merely illuminates the fallen state of all mankind. The one distinction to be made here is that the church ought not to endorse laws that use coercion in order to create obedience that relates to the first table of the law, those principles that speak to violations of the spirit. For example, don't commit idolatry in Exodus 24. Justification and sanctification, which are both God-initiated, non-coercive processes, these are the business of the church. After all, practically speaking, how would the state enforce violation of the spirit, for example, false worship or idolatry? If the state did enforce violation of the spirit, that would open the door to theocratic totalitarianism. The state governs over both the regenerate and unregenerate, so it is not responsible to enforce the first table of the law on non-Christians. God will be the final judge on those who violate the first table. The state is suited best to enforce violations of the second table where concrete, tangible harm is done to another. Now on to the fifth and final question. In the United States, does Romans 13 guide us on how to vote? Yes, Romans 13 does help us to think and act biblically when, in the United States, we have the privilege to vote in an election. Let us be thankful for this wonderful privilege, cognizant that in many other nations in the world, citizens cannot vote. Let us also be thankful for this wonderful privilege, cognizant that in many other nations in the world, voting is regarded as an exercise in futility. The first issue to consider is if you should vote at all. Well, there is no biblical command to vote, neither is it required of federal, state, or local laws. But if we, as Christians, are to serve as watchmen and examples of those around us, it is prudent if we do vote. See Ezekiel 33, verses 1 to 12. If we don't, we leave the whole matter up to the world. The second issue to consider is that Romans 13, in the context of the whole canon of Scripture, persuades us to see that we never vote for a candidate Rather, we vote for principles that most closely align with God's truth. What I mean by that is the text tells us what the state is called to do and how we respond to it. The text does not specify the desired character traits of the leaders themselves. Instead, the Apostle Paul emphasizes what principles civil authority as a corporate body is supposed to operate by. This is in stark contrast when we consider the qualifications of those being considered for church leadership. For these men, their character is of prime importance. See 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 and Titus 1, 6-9. The idea of voting for principles finds support when the Bible talks about the responsibilities of an Old Testament king. Yes, it is clear that the age of the ancient Israelite theocracy is over, but we can extract timeless principles from Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to 20. There, what we learn is that the king's primary responsibility was the administration of justice. In other words, the process of using laws to fairly judge and punish crimes and criminals. This correlates with the primary responsibility of the modern state in the administration of law and order. In Deuteronomy 17, 14-17, God explains the king ought not to enrich himself with horses, women, and gold, because that will lead his heart astray. 
Then, in verses 18 to 20, he explains what the king should do. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll, in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he will learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully following all the words of this law and these statutes, so that his heart will not be haughty towards countrymen, and that he will not turn away from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may live long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. In other words, what the king should do is be well-versed in God's universal, transcendent moral law in order that he may be an effective administrator of justice. We are therefore persuaded to vote for a candidate that abides by the biblical principle of the state being an administrator of law and order. As I mentioned last time, we also have to wrestle with the fact that in Romans 13, Paul was writing to the church in Imperial Rome, the same regime that crucified Christ. The same regime that had men with character, such as that of Pilate, who would sacrifice the truth and permit the greatest injustice in the history of all time, the crucifixion. All of this, of course, does not suggest that the moral character of a candidate is of no consideration. It simply means their moral character is not of primary consideration. Consider, if we as Christians go to the ballot box, if we were to vote for candidates, what we are in essence doing is choosing between sinners. And in the case of American politics, you are likely voting for one unregenerate sinner over another. Is either character choice pro-God? And, in the case of history, the Bible teaches us an unfortunate lesson, that people are biased towards voting for self-destructive leaders and have an inexplicable appetite for bad leadership. See Judges chapter 9 and 1 Samuel chapter 8. When voting for principles, you are in essence asking whose worldview, based on words and actions, most closely align with God's truth. Granted, you may have two candidates whose worldviews are both light years away, but relatively speaking, one may be closer than the other. Indeed, choosing often is not black or white, but there are some issues on which I think most biblical Christians can agree that establish clear lines of demarcation. Those issues are abortion, freedom of speech, and the sphere of the state. Thus, to simplify matters, when considering a candidate, ask if they believe it is right to murder children. If they believe it is right, then likely their entire moral compass is corrupt. Do they believe in free speech? If they do, they will defend the proclamation of the gospel. If they don't, they threaten to prevent what God has commanded. What is their view of the state? A state which operates in a limited sphere is a biblical state. A state that tries to usurp authority in all spheres in life is a demonic state. What I also must make clear is that just because a candidate may be pro-life, pro-free speech, and pro-limited government does not necessarily make them a good leader. All I can say, based on the scriptures, is that a candidate who is in favor of the murder of children will invariably be a bad leader. The hope that the community of faith will always have is that regardless of how you or I vote, God is the one who casts a decisive ballot. In American politics, I think it is readily obvious that those on the left have a worldview that is satanic. It not only hates God, but also tries to spit in his face and invert his design. 
For example, the support of abortion, the redefinition of biblical marriage, the revolt against divine design, transgenderism, and the overreach of the state into spheres of the church, family, and individual. Yet, this recognition does not imply that those on the right are any better. What I mean by that is while the left's worldview is clearly aligned with the will of Satan, in many instances, the political right's worldview is clearly aligned with the will of man. This manifests in many instances as the champion of individual autonomy over that of God at all costs. You see, there are three great wills in the universe, God, man, and Satan. If you choose to do either man or Satan's will, you are in essence making the same choice because you are choosing to be anti-God. The take-home point is that we are Christians are called to be discerning and to weigh everything carefully. We never vote against anything, but are always voting for God's principles. This is another great tension of living in the midst of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.